This is Sex and Ethics. Um, I'm Sharon Lamb, and my co-host here is... Madeline Brote. And it's uh, January 13th, 2021. Pretty momentous week. We're going to forget all about that. Uh, We podcast (laughs) irregularly, and in the weirdest times, like when everyone's glued to their screens waiting to see if democracy will be upheld this week, but we still seem to have time in our schedules to talk about sex, neon lights, neon lights, and (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, Nelly. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about professorial conduct in the teaching of sex and sexuality in academia. And I've been wanting to talk about an article. I, I read the article about a professor who was chastised for hot tubbing with his students and a few things else. And uh, But I wanted to wait until I had finished teaching uh, my counseling 666 to master students in mental health counseling. That is sex and sexuality and counseling. And it's a required course, too, because uh, my uh, student, Madeline's colleague, Julie Coven, had also taught that course. We invited her to join us today. Uh, Madeline and Julie also taught a first year seminar that I originally designed called Sexual Ethics. That one is for first year students duh, first year seminar. And uh, maybe one of you could tell our listeners about each of these courses. Madeline, which course do you want to talk about? Sex and sexuality or first year seminar? I guess the first one that popped in my head was first year seminar. So is that all right with you, Julie? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So it's based on the sexy curriculum that Sharon had developed, but obviously it needed to be transformed because we were the goal of a first year seminar is to encourage students to adjust to college life, as well as develop some of those really necessary skills that they need to continue to use throughout their educational career. So things like critical thinking, ethical Well, they won't use ethical argument necessarily throughout their whole career, but how to structure an appropriate argument in a paper, um, improve their writing skills, and also like get them up to speed with how to digest the amount of information they need to within a college course that's quite different from a high school course. So we made some significant alterations to the curriculum to make it more appropriate for this group of folks. So we spent three hours a week together talking about the various issues which included things like pornography and what the ethics of pornography are. We also talked about the ethics of female genital mutilation versus male circumcision and why those are different and the cultural context that led them to be different. It was a really, really enjoyable and exciting course because so many of my students in my class had never examined some of these issues before or straight up had not been exposed to these issues. And I think it was a really wonderful way to examine some of their assumptions about relationships and sex at a time where they may be most able to actually go and explore (laughs) as a euphemism, I guess I would want to say that. Right. And the students loved you as they loved Julie too. In what's not to love, you come in your first semester at uh, college and your teacher's young and enthusiastic and says, let's talk about sex today. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely a fun time. Yeah. So, Julie, how did you teach the Counseling 666 course? And uh, Because I think you and I had different versions of it, but why don't you say what, what your aim was when you were teaching mental health counseling students about sex? Yeah. So the Counseling 666 course, um, you know, focused on an overview of human sexuality, understanding sexual function and dysfunction and its intersection with um mental health related issues, but really it was also understanding all the different aspects of sexuality, expanding beyond just, you know, sexual orientation and sexual functioning, but also to, you know, one's experience with one's body and embodiment and issues of sexual trauma and all sorts of other stuff. 
But um, because it was a counseling course in our program that really focuses on intersectionality and multicultural issues, we looked at sex and sexuality and its intersection with gender and race, ethnicity, which were some challenging conversations to have with master's students coming in from really different places. Like some were coming right out of, you know, undergrad, but others had been working in the field for a while. So definitely some thoughts on that. But we also brought up some of those exciting topics that we talked about in our um, sexual ethics course, such as sex work, pornography, sex toys, and things like that. So always um, some interesting things to cover in terms of uh, counseling. And some folks were very interested in taking the course and others, um, as it was a required course, were not as interested. So I had a fabulous experience. It was like the best time I had ever taught a course at UMass Boston. I think the students, except for my first semester there, I think it was because I had a mature class. Um, The online cohort for our mental health counseling program is full of people who have been in other professions and who are starting to their mental health counseling career. They were actually in their first semester of their second year. They were like age 25 to 64. And they were surprisingly not all, you know, gung-ho or liberal. Some people were from countries that are pretty conservative about, you know, female sexuality and things like that. And I mean, so we had cross-cultural perspective and we had different generations. And oh, also I tried to focus more on how they would respond as a therapist to different things people said. So they got really into into uh, coming up with sexual problems and having people, you know, a friend of mine has, <laughs> I told them actually, they're not allowed to to come up with the problem and say, this is a friend of mine's because everyone's going <laughs> to think it's theirs. And, yeah. <laughs> but um, we had a lot of good case studies to practice on. But anyway, I, I mean, there, there were, there's, it's, there, it's always tense, isn't it? When you're teaching mm-hmm. about sex and sexuality, I'm pretty free in the way I talk about sex, but you know, maybe, uh, but always worried that I've shocked somebody or said something that might have offended someone. I even had to tell the class when uh, we talked about like certain things, like not to get all excited and happy just because we're talking about porn. You know, like somebody said, oh, we get to talk about porn. You know, I had to warn them about that because some people in the class might feel very anti-porn and, and mm-hmm. or somebody might have had really horrible experience either in the industry or, you know, with uh, addiction type behaviors of people in their family or themselves. So let's not get all excited, like, oh, we got to talk about porn and sex right now. So I think that work to take to be very respectful and serious, where otherwise I would have made a lot of jokes. And uh, I think only once did I call out somebody in the class when I thought they made a, a joke. I just back channeled them. And I said, careful, you might have offended somebody. Yeah. Which you can do when you talk about Absolutely. Conversations are so fraught because they don't happen often enough in our culture. I think we're finally starting to get to a point where it's more acceptable to talk about sex in your everyday life. But I think one of the things that we had to talk about as a class in when I was teaching 666 is like, you need to be able to say body parts out loud, like say the word penis and don't turn bright red. And some of my students were really challenged by it. I don't know if that was anyone else's experience. Well, I, I, after I said I took it very seriously, I must say that I did call one day penis day and the other day vagina day because <laughs> so from the start that we were talking about, you know, those different uh, issues that might come up in a therapy session about penises or vaginas. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden I'm starting to feel self-conscious saying, I could say those words on a podcast, can't I? Of course you can Definitely. Well, and Julie, you're pretty free with talking about um, sex too, right? I mean, everyone should know who's listening that we were in a research lab together where we talked about sex every week and we yucked it up all the time and just said, whatever. I don't think we shared much about our personal experiences, but, um, and we'll get to that, about what our boundaries were and are or should be in a bit, but we certainly spoke freely about other people's sex, right? Yeah, it definitely becomes very comfortable. And then you have to kind of check yourself in the classroom environment where others may not have those experiences and may not be comfortable going there. 
Mm-hmm. There were two times in our research lab where you all, I think you were both there when I felt a little embarrassed about my lack of knowledge. I guess I didn't know what a unicorn was, and I guess that's a popular phrase. Yeah. yeah. And I felt so like, here I am, supposedly um, an expert. It just it really showed my age. And I think there was another time when uh, Marta looked at Madeline in the group and said, she didn't grow up in the porn culture that we did. And I think it was kind of like, and that's when I always remember that because I, because I think it, it just, I, I, from then on, I remembered these are people who grew up seeing porn. Almost everyone yeah. I, I work with or know now, whereas I grew up looking at stealing looks at playboys, basically. And it wasn't until college, I think the penthouse came out. So it was really just women posing for centerfolds of Playboy topless. That was my porn, so to speak. Right, which is really different from kids now growing up watching graphic sex that is oftentimes violent. I'm glad you brought up that point and we can talk about that more. But isn't it odd, though, that these same students who grew up with porn, I think it's really odd that the very same students who are who grew up with porn and probably watched it or snuck it are the same ones that are all touchy about what you say in class or, you know, and and, uh, a little bit afraid of talking about it in class, too. There's mm-hmm. a, a disconnect. I'm assuming that. I'm just assuming that it's not all the people like, hey, fun, let's talk about sex who have watched porn, but basically. Yeah. I think, you know, that's such an interesting point. Even though like people are consuming it and consuming more graphic and intense pornography and more and more specific as well, that they are uncomfortable with it. And I wonder if it's just like, you know, this is something they put away into a very special box you know, this, that chest in the corner is my like sexuality and personal experience of pornography corner. And they can't touch the other things in the room. Cause I think yeah, it's but that, that those people who think sex is so personal and so private, it just, that there's some disconnect too about watching other people have sex on the screen. For sure. Right. Anyway, let's get on to talking about this George Mason story, because I think that, you know, that will lead us into discussion about what our boundaries were in mm-hmm. uh, class. And and I'm I'm somebody who I think tells quite a few anecdotes about myself or shares pretty freely. I don't think I've shared much about my sex lives, except maybe when we talk about bad experiences that have to do with trauma and trauma class or something like that. But I don't think I've talked much about just general, like my sex life or my sex life growing up, which is kind of odd since I share uh, freely, generally. But anyway, yeah, so let's talk more about that. But I want to preface talking about this with the acknowledgement that sexual harassment is pretty rampant in academia. I think yeah. there was one study that said like over 60% of, of, uh, of uh, was it students felt that they were sexually harassed or just anyone in academia? I think it was students, but it's so bad. There's actually an online database tracking accusations of, of sexual misconduct with students from professors. And you go on there, you see it's happening everywhere. It's not happening, you know, just at Ivy League institutions or just at community colleges, it's happening all over the place. Yeah, there, it came out in Me Too, um, in the Me Too mm-hmm. era, which I hope is still going on. And many famous professors were accused publicly, just like Harvey Weinstein was. Mm-hmm. I recall walking at UMass Boston in the hall and I saw an older professor in the sciences talking to a, a, a student, female student who was young, and putting his arm around her in a very avuncular way, perhaps. Mm. But I was yeah. like, no, 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 we don't do that anymore. Just stop, stop. Don't yeah. put your arm around a student. Mm. It's so interesting to be having these discussions as a professor who has never met any of her students. Um, (laughs) because you're online teaching them yeah so I'm curious to see you know as we transition back into having things in person what do people feel comfortable with and what people don't but that's an aside okay so what did this guy do I don't even remember his name the guy at George Mason 
I remember him. He's a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, which I found very surprising. Ooh. Right. Well, I, maybe we have a different view about what he did. Mm. <laughs> Let's see. We will see. So what, I mean, maybe there were tons of things, but the four things that he was called to task for or chastised for was he was talking about exhibitionism and he told students he had once performed oral sex on a woman at a party. Um, She had invited other people to watch him do it. His argument was it was an example of exhibitionism and the students said it was detailed. And he said, but I didn't say anything about who the woman was. I protected who she was. The second thing was that he invited students to his hot tub and told them about a sexual experience he once had in Germany. I mean, the way it's written, it sounds like he said, come on to my hot tub, get in. I've got a story to tell you, but I'm guessing they they were in a hot tub drinking. And probably other things were also discussed. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he said, oh, 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 I've got a story. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later with different students, he went to a strip club and at that strip club, he received a lap dance. It didn't say he invited one. I guess when you go to a strip club that you take that risk that somebody will give you a lap dance. I don't know because I've never been to a strip club where I was just about to say, I was like, I don't think that happens that strippers are like here, receive this thing for free. No, Uh, that is something that you procure and you pay for upfront. They didn't say that, though. Wouldn't you think that would be an important thing where he paid for a lap dance in front of them? So I'm just thinking, I, you know, I base so much of this on the movies. I'm picturing a happy table there and then somebody comes over and is joking with somebody in the audience and on. But there could have been not a total lap dance, but maybe some kind of interaction or a shot girl doing a dance on him. Perhaps that could have happened without a whole arrangement, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you, if we had gone to a strip club because we were writing a paper on something and we were going to, you know, um, you know, just do deconstructed discourse of the people in the tables nearby or the announcer or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and if we were sitting at that table and somebody came over and started like messing with me in that way, you guys would be hysterically laughing and I would be too. And I would be saying, no, no, go away. Probably. I wouldn't sit there and enjoy it. Right. But I could yeah. imagine that yeah. happening. I can't imagine actually in this day and age of us going to the strip club, I think I would be too afraid, but I, I want to say, I think it would have been okay for us to have done that if we were investigating that. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. It's challenging for me to like consider your hypothetical scenario as like a one-to-one. And the reason is, is because although this professor, his name is Cashton, or that's how it looks to be said, um, has done research on sexuality. It seems like he does not do research on sexuality that could lead one to perhaps go to a strip club for research purposes. Because like the research that I have seen most articles about him talk about was a simple study, like saying that sexual activity and happiness are linked together in undergraduates. And if that's the kind of research this uh, professor was doing, I can't necessarily see like the educational link to going to a strip club, I guess. Maybe there's extra information that we're missing from no, the media well, coverage. Of well, this. well, okay. So now I have to remind you, um, and perhaps um, this is, I'm in big trouble for this, but do you remember when we went to the conference in Philadelphia? Man? I do. We went to the burlesque show. We, and we were with a bunch of um, researchers from Australia and there was, and there was a, a woman who was so interested in seeing some drag kings and she's like, I heard there's some drag kings. We've got to go see. And so we were all just happily running down the street. And Madeline was my, you know, a beginning student at that time, I think. Yeah. And we were going there and then they were really disappointed because it was only drag queens. Mm -hmm. And I think they left and Madeline and I were there alone. And then some drag queen on a fake horsey was taking off. I remember it very graphically, Mm -hmm. their shirt and playing around with their 
breasts. And I'm like, oh, I'm here with a student. <laughs> and I think we kind of left. But I don't, it never occurred to me that you could have reported me and that would have been a problem. Yeah. So I want to articulate the like, I was fine with that experience. And the reason that that was a totally okay experience for me is because it was a cultural event in the way that we were framing it, right? Just like, you know, when it's time for, I'm totally blanking on the name of a holiday right now. Maybe it's Diwali and we want to go to a place where they're celebrating Diwali and like see what people do. I think that's kind of analogous to a burlesque show or a drag show because it's a very specific cultural practice done by people who are members of a community, usually seen by members of that community. I think where it could have crossed a line is not having that context of like this like cultural appreciation and you didn't organize the burlesque show. We were following people that we liked and were having fun with. If you were like, Madeline, next week we're going to AERA and we're going to go to a titty bar. I would be like, what is happening? <laughs> well, I mean, then the other thing was that I kept sort of saying, isn't this interesting that this is, you know, and I was trying, I was the professor throughout. I wasn't yes. the girlfriend look at this right and I remember us having like in-depth discussions of the dynamics of tassel twirling like we couldn't figure it out and we were trying to understand the physics of how one could twirl one's tassels but it wasn't in a sexual way it was just like I literally do not understand how someone can do that how are they doing how are they making things twirl Julie's so jealous now she was like I wish I could have gone with you (laughs) that would have been great to be a part of and then talk about afterwards it sounds like it was quite the uh scientific study I think what you don't understand though is that no matter where I am I'm deconstructing and sounding like a professor so I really have that protection no matter what I say or do as long as I say let's figure out what discourse is happening here I'm okay So what you're saying is, if you approach it in that way, it maybe makes the experience okay versus someone who's maybe out for pleasure or enjoyment at a strip club, per se. Mm -hmm. Well, so then telling them, and maybe he's gave a little bit too much detail about the oral sex, um, but to say, you know, I once was, you know, hanging out with somebody at a party and they invited a bunch of people to watch, that would have been okay. I think, to share in the class, but the graphicness of his description, I don't know. Yeah, It seems like that, that was a a line there. And I think, you know, even when we've been talking about, you know, your research focuses so much on ethics and the specifics of a scenario. So it's not like in research group, we haven't talked about very detailed sexual experiences, but it's only a level of detail that's required to make an ethical argument right so like i'm thinking a lot about the hammock Mm. guess what i've just discovered something so the i've been calling it a hammock and my uh, gay friends are taking away my gay card now because it's called a sling a sling it's published now in an article as a hammock and it's i'm just mortified that i've called it a hammock instead of. i didn't know it was a sling yeah what's the difference but it's so for for our listeners the thing that we're talking about whatever we call it a hammock a sling Mm -hmm. sharon had heard about a scenario where several gay male friends were out at a retreat and there was a sling slash hammock that had a hole in it that kind of operated like a glory hole is that accurate? Yes, but it's for um, your butt. Not- yes, not for your penis or um, your front genitals, whatever they are. So you were kind of confused by that. And we're trying to understand the ethics of like approaching a person who was in said sling hammock and how they could have like the most caring experience possible, even though it is somewhat anonymous. Yeah. How could you make sure that you're not causing harm or contributing to somebody's re-traumatization or self-harm? Yeah. And that's a, I feel like that's a pretty detailed sexual scenario, right? Like that is a high level of detail. You have like a naked man. It was quote unquote a friend. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's a helpful example to think through like what level of detail is 
on one side of the boundary versus another side of the boundary. Um, Cause I think it's possible to be detailed and also boundary. Yeah. And it seems like the difference is talking about oneself in a sexual experience versus referring to friends or others as I also did while teaching. So if I were a man and I said I was at a gay retreat and I saw this, would that be one step too too close to or or I think it's that and I participated in this and then I felt maybe guilty was it wrong or right? That's too close. Don't tell anybody what sex you do. What you're participating in. Right. Yeah. I think really? that that's a line, but I think it's so contextual. For me as a queer person, if I had a gay male acquaintance voice that I would not feel as uncomfortable because I think that's a norm within queer communities to be much more explicit in talking about sex. So like I hear lots of detail from my gay friends about how they have sex that I do not hear from my straight We're friends. not talking about friends though. In the class, would you think that that would be still okay if it were a class on, you know, queer sex? Hmm. Hmm. I'm less sure. Julie, do you have any kind of initial thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely different between friends and class. I really find it difficult to determine the boundary in class when talking about some of these things. And I did err on the side of caution as it was my first, you know, course, my second course. But I wonder if I would have a different evolution of what is appropriate as I continue to teach in, you know, Mm -hmm. sex and sexuality and things like that. Okay, well, what about, let's, let's move on to not what you say, because I don't think we actually have an, I mean, what is the ethic of saying hold back and don't tell people about your own personal experience? The ethic is really don't make people uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's important for a professor to have a boundary so that the students don't, I don't, I, I can't really. I think for me, it's more about that power differential and like what, maybe someone feels agency to say like, and I'm good with that level of detail. (laughs) Like you can stop there. Uh, And I think students, because of the power differential in teaching, despite, I think, I think all three of us have a very collegial collaborative and like participatory teaching style. So we try and minimize that power differential as much as we can, but it's still there. And I think when you remove someone's ability to like opt in or out of hearing details. I think that's where my problem is. Mm -hmm. And what would be the wrong in giving somebody too many details? I mean, cause what, why would it be wrong for me to go into like a whole big argument I had with my husband last night? That's just taking up too much class time, really. Because it's for you. Like something that we used in our 666 class was the concept of self-disclosure needs to be for the client or for the student's learning. And we kind of use that as a way to gauge what to talk about or what not to talk about. And I think it's, it really comes up also because we're coming in with a background in counseling psychology. We have certain ethics of what, you know, should be discussed in a therapy session that I kind of translated to the teaching context as well. That makes sense. And that's why it would be a bit, but that's why it's a bit looser when you go out to a club or you're in a hot tub with people, right? Mm -hmm. Because you are, I mean, students always want you to share things about yourself. They don't want you to have to. I mean, we've been out drinking at conferences. Just, (laughs) just, no, don't say that. (laughs) There goes my job. But yeah, no, we've (laughs) we've been out drinking and we've had a lot of fun too. And we, um, you know, go out and and talk. But I mean, and you do share things about yourself, but you still shouldn't. I mean, he's in a hot tub with them and he's telling them about a sexual experience he once had in Germany. That, why is that over the, whatever, what's the Over the line? Yeah. Line. That was a hard word to think of. <laughs> There's a couple of things that are coming up for me right now, which is like, again, that contextual factor. I think because he's a cisgender dude, there's way less things that are open to him to talk about, period. Because I think you can't divorce that level of privilege from the person that you're talking to. Because 
when I think of people who engage in like inappropriate behavior, I think of cisgender men. To so be that's great. Frank. So it's the background of sexual harassment and white men's bad behavior that's making white heterosexual men's bad behavior that's making this story uh, more uncomfortable for people and quasi invitational. Yes, exactly. I think one of the challenges, particularly because if I'm correct, the students involved in this are graduate students. And I think the graduate student professor relationship is a really unique animal because you're working so closely together and you can develop such a close relationship. And it's quite different than any of the relationships I had with teachers at the undergraduate level, because it is common for us to be in these more informal social settings where we could be considered to be more peers than in a power hierarchy. And I know there's folks that are faculty members who have had uh, myself over to their house and I have been in their pool. And so I was also thinking about this as like, what's different here? Why am I comfortable going to that person's pool? Who invited you to a pool party? I'm so jealous. Lisa Cosgrove. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, oh, I remember Lisa had a pool. <laughs> when she still had her house out in. Um... No. Yeah. So, I was always invited to swim in that pool. Yes. A conscious swim in that river as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I was thinking when, when we started, when we picked this story, I was like, what's different about me going to Lisa's house to go to the pool versus a hot tub? And it was that gender thing. But also Lisa wasn't in the pool with me. And I think that's a really, especially thinking about like multiple people in a hot tub together, those are small. You're touching people in a way that you might not have touched a graduate student before. Oh, that sounded awful. I hope you can the, the listeners know what I mean, because that sounded really creepy. I'm, I realize I'm the person with the most power, but that just doesn't feel that bad to me, I guess, given we've gone out to restaurants and gone drinking and that sort of mm-hmm. If you're at a conference and everyone goes down to the hot tub or something, I guess inviting you over to my house, making you dinner and saying, okay, let's hang out in the hot tub, drink and just chit chat. I could imagine that, even though I hate hot tubs or something, I could imagine it. I just don't, I, I guess I could really imagine myself in this guy's situation. And that's why it's not an ethical argument to say, and I could imagine that would happen that way, um, that way. And, uh. And uh, I just don't think I would be reported for it. Yeah, like, I don't think I would have a problem doing that with you. But I also know our relationship. And there is something about both being cisgendered women with, I don't know, somewhat similar backgrounds. And I don't know, there's just like, I don't know. Yeah, it's that backdrop of sexual harassment and straight men that Madeline was talking about that makes it a little suspect. Mm-hmm. I just, what do you, I mean, I think if I were the chair of that department, I would just say to him, hey, uh, you, you got to cut that out. I'm getting complaints. And that's it. But this sort of formal barring him from teaching graduate courses for two years and sexual I mean sexual harassment training I've taken that training I don't think there's anything in there that would really have made him that he didn't know already yeah that's a podcast for another day talking about sexual harassment training but I bet you he didn't learn very much from the training I feel like I want you to have like three months discussion about this with some psychologist on campus or some psychologist of your choosing that would be much better than sexual harassment training I love that option I don't think you're allowed to tell people they get they have to have mental health treatment though. I think that's mm. a kind of a law type thing. But hard from teaching graduate courses that just seems I don't know. I guess I should hear from the students and how harmed they were by it. I mean, maybe they felt like they couldn't, you know, do their dissertation with anyone else because they really wanted to do it on strip clubs, but then they felt they had to do it with him and listen to his stories all the time. I mean, imagine if it was that horrible that every time you were in his office, you'd be rolling your eyes saying, oh, now I have to hear all about his sex life again or something like that. And mm-hmm. you'd be trapped as a student. Yeah, we yeah. don't know if there was something like quid pro quo about it. Some students do feel like they need to do certain things for 
recommendation letters, for that support for their dissertation to make the process go more smoothly. Yeah, which is why that like who is organizing and who is in charge of it part of the discussion that we were having about the burlesque club was so important because I could really see if he was like, here's our end of the year party. You're all coming over to my house and we're going in the hot tub. I don't know if I would have felt comfortable being like, I am not going in the hot tub. I think I would talk to my husband and he would be like, you are not going in the hot tub. That is a, a bridge too far. Perhaps rein it back in. But he, I don't know if I would have been able to say no. Well, that's funny yeah. we're talking about a hot tub because I just remember that, you know, the last place where I was teaching, there was a physics professor and it was sort of well known that he had a hot tub and he would invite all these faculty members over there and people would were joking once I got there, I guess it was all over saying, had you gone? And all these junior faculty members went naked in his hot tub. So they, they were all professors but, you know, a senior professor with somebody who doesn't have tenure, mm-hmm. they didn't have to go to his house. But once they went there, maybe, and everyone's taken off their clothes, there's a little bit of peer pressure, even when you're, just be warned, academia, <laughs> you know, <laughs> get naked in a hot tub with your <laughs> professors. But still, yeah, there's always that kind of pressure in things. It's It's just very hard to... And he wasn't that harmed. I didn't lose his job, I guess. He just didn't, you know, so why am I feeling sorry for him? He was really, you know, he was inappropriate in my view. Yeah. I guess it's Mm -hmm. just a little bit of what are the, what is the ethical principle behind uh, keep upholding your boundary? Is it harm or is it um, unfairness? The power thing that you were talking about. I don't think that it's harm because I think when I think about harm, I think more about like more active situations where harm is being done. And so I think it's more that kind of like power piece and autonomy. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are you thinking, Julie? I mean, dual relationships comes up for me, but I'm trying to think mm. what core ethical principle that would be I think maybe benevolence right because benevolence is includes promotion of autonomy or is that my students are going to listen to this from my ethics class and be like you don't remember the foundations (laughs) I don't know I guess you know respect for persons I think it's more that responsibility you're saying that students do not feel like they have that autonomy that freedom really to be able to say no no stop I don't want to hear it and 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 I'm you know mm-hmm. <laughs> talk to the hand and so you're a captive audience when you're a lecturer the, your students are a captive audience and so you have to treat that carefully somewhat mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know and when you invite people over to your house and your professor they're still a captive audience I mean there's a lot of there's a there's a bit of a coerciveness about not participating in um, the fun of something and what you're going to miss out and what opportunities you're going to miss out on by being more prudish or whatever. Yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think there's so much to, like, I'm so curious what the, the culture of the department was at this university, because I think... Mm. One thing that UMass Boston really excels at is encouraging all of us to be independent, critical thinkers. And that's something I really valued from this. And so I think right from the start of my doctoral, my graduate career, not just my doctoral, I was encouraged to say like what I was thinking, what I was feeling and responding genuinely. And I wasn't punished for that. Now that I've like switched institutions and I'm seeing how other folks are socialized to graduate school, like I have students who are saying sorry to me for breathing, basically, (laughs) and they're much more deferential to me. And I'm like, come on, I'm just a lady. I'm like you, please call me Madeline. Mm -hmm. Um, But so many of them still call me Dr. Brote because it's so much more formal and rigid here as a culture. So I wonder if that might be a factor. Yeah. Okay, so Julie brought up dual relationships. That's a psychology ethics concept. And I looked it up recently because I wanted to be reminded. Uh, It gets remembered as we shouldn't have dual relationships. 
but that's not the ethic. You, the ethic is you shouldn't have a dual relationship if it might harm the other person to do that, right? Or if the harm overwhelms the benefit. Right. So when the person says uh, in that article in the Washington Post about Cashton, that students are students, they're not our friends, I kind of took issue with that. I mean, some of my students have become friends of mine, and I hope that, uh, and I say this also with my teacher, Rachel Hermuston, who I knew until her death at 92 or something this year. She was not just a mentor and a teacher, but she was a friend. And, you know, we shared a lot. She took care of my older son when my younger son was born. I swam in her pool. (laughs) She didn't have a pool. But, you know, there were many, many times when we got together and shared lots of things. And she would share things that she probably shouldn't have shared with me as a student about other professors or things like that. I wouldn't say shouldn't, but because I was very happy, but some might say shouldn't. But still, I mean, she was a friend and a mentor and my former teacher. So, yeah, and I benefited from both. I think that misinterpretation of the dual relationship guidance about in psychology is based in the medical model, where it's really easy to be like, I'm your... I don't know, pulmonary system teacher. And we're never going to talk about anything other than pulmonary systems. But I think within psychology, it becomes way more difficult to do that because you're talking about interpersonal processes as you are in an interpersonal process. And I don't think it's fair to say that like someone is just a mentor because you are sharing personal stuff and it does get messy and complicated, especially when you're doing clinical work and you might be supervised by the same person like yeah yeah so tell me did you did you feel like you broke a boundary ever when or crossed a boundary or what's the word violated or trespassed tipped uh, your over the line when you were teaching I have a recent example and it was my partner Bob who pointed it out to me mm-hmm. um so we are in the in the land of in the time of COVID and Last semester, I had my first student be like, I have a positive COVID test and email me saying they're not going to come to class. And immediately I was like, are you okay? Do you need stuff? Like blah, 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 like totally unprompted. And Bob is like, that was a lot for you to do for you to email that student being like, do you need anything? Can I provide you with anything? Because I was just at the beginning of the relationship with this person. I've never even met them in person. And so uh, I think it was like a month into the semester. So it was too soon. Well, that's but a I lovely think, example. That's not. But it's still a boundary crossing. Like I'm like, hi, I'm going to show up at your house with chicken soup. Like that is a boundary <laughs> crossing. Um, I think, you know, I might've done a lower key version of that about being like, are your needs met? If you need any assistance, please feel free to reach out to me instead of what I actually did. But it definitely was like a, a boundary crossing for me. How about you? In the, do you have anything you did in this in either of your sex classes, Julie? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were. No, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm like, I'm sure there were. I'm trying to think of anything really sticks out to me, because I, yeah, I definitely with with the transition to online teaching and worrying about COVID, there was there were students who were disclosing things going on at home that were interfering with their ability to succeed academically. And I was, you know, offering support that lent, that was almost, you know, bordering into like therapeutic or, you know, I, so that was not necessarily appropriate. I'm talking about sexual issues. I mean, like if, 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 for example, for me to be over 60 and talking and teaching a course on older people who have sex and talking about problems that older people who have sex, I'm sure every student in the class was thinking she still has sex. You know, there's something about when you talk about it, that they, that you're, you're almost revealing something Or um, if you ask a question about something that you don't know that you should know if you were in a BDSM community, then everyone knows she's not into BDSM, right? So you reveal things about yourself without even disclosing 
I mm. think. But but I mean, did you ever do that when you were teaching class? Say, well, I don't know much about polyamory. I mean, I would feel that if I'm teaching about polyamory, I should not let the students know whether I approve or disapprove if I participate or not, even because that's going to make them feel uncomfortable in in class that they should imagine whatever they wanted me maybe I'm being like a psychoanalyst or something like that but did you reveal anything about your sexual you know proclivities experience attitudes while I mean of course we're all against trauma and and illegal things but anything like that that you felt like you you may revealed a bit too much I think for me when you were talking about some of those examples I definitely was not on the neutral line like you were talking about. Like when I talked about polyamory or BDSM and kink or asexuality, I was like, these are normal and fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because I had the pedagogical choice to, had made the pedagogical choice to be supportive of some of these marginalized sexual identities that because I treated them all equally, it was not disclosing anything, if that makes sense. Like, I think the key See, to I not disclosing to too much. We had, a, we had readings like that. We had a whole class of marginalized erotic, you know, things. So I didn't have to do that. But I feel like by not doing that, and also by being older, that those who had problems with it felt comfortable writing about it or saying mm. it because they knew they wouldn't get smashed down by me and say you're so uncool that is that is something I was worrying about because I did take a very sex positive way of teaching and talking about sex work and pornography and you know well critical also I'm wondering if it didn't create the space for all students to necessarily talk or I did have students who talked about, oh, maybe, you know, sex work is not that different from being, what's it called? Like a sugar baby, like, and those conversations were happening, but my classroom, I didn't hear as many conversations. This is in the sexual ethics class that were more conservative. I think there was one student who was considerably older who did share things, but I think, you know, he was more established in his belief system and way of life. Well, I think, I mean, I think that I, I was, pretty careful around those things so that because I also had people from other countries there too and I wanted to be respectful of religious views too of people and and it paid off because as I don't know what your papers were like but when I got my um, sexual self-study papers so I asked them all as you remember to write a whole paper about their lives as sexual beings from beginning till present and I said and if you're uncomfortable reflecting on practices just write about attitudes like all your attitudes about these different things nobody took me up on that they were shockingly (laughs) revealing I was like wait I didn't ask for that oh yes I did ask for yeah they were shockingly revealing so much so that it made me I'm the class will be really the next time I teach it I will be more aware that I can't know what people do at all from looking at them on zoom or even in the classroom I don't know who I didn't know who was a virgin I didn't know who you know had you know tons of I don't even know I wouldn't want to call it interesting experiences, erotically marginalized experiences. I just wouldn't know because it didn't look like who they look like out there. The boundary thing that I felt a little weird about was that if somebody's talking about a sexual problem of their partner or themselves, I want to give them advice. I want to send them to resources and things like that. And I wasn't I never did that unless it was in the reading and they missed it. I say, check back on the reading on this day about this. Because otherwise I felt I crossed the line about becoming a sex therapist. But I was dying to just say, you know, there are things called dilators or something like that, you know, (laughs) just to give them a little hint about what they, if they just searched online, you know, they might find something, but Mm -hmm. Anyway, did you do that? Did you end up giving some advice for this or that? You probably did because you're more their age too. I can't really remember someone bringing up a particular sexual problem, but Mm -hmm. I think that might also be an artifact of like most of the students that were in my class were of a similar age to me. 
So they came up also at the time where porn and like the internet could answer some of these questions. Whereas I think in your class, there was much more diversity in terms of like age and also like cultural location with their country of origin. Um, Cause almost all of my students were born in America, raised in America. So I think well, it might be an well, artifact of so who it was. To me though, it's, it's kind of interesting why they were so revealing. And I'd like to say it was me, but I have a feeling it was two things, teaching them online. So mm-hmm. it wasn't so much For of a sure. personal relationship and being older, right? Mm. So it was, I think that it was more like she's a therapist. So I can say these sorts of things. Yeah, that reminds me of when Elena was doing some of the interviews about the sexual subjectivity things is that y'all had talked about like, so for context, Elena is of a similar age to myself and Julie. And she was doing interviews with men about what was going through their head during sex. And one of the challenges that she had doing those interviews was that there was a lot of like posturing to impress her or some other thing related to her positionality that might not have been present if like, say you were doing the interviewing. So maybe I can look forward to going into that. Like, what is it called? The middle age where you get to be invisible. (laughs) I'm excited for that time. Right. Well, I I don't know if I felt very, I did not feel very invisible as an older person. I felt sometimes that there was a bit of an er attempt to write erotically, like about that. I don't think it was to, to, for me necessarily, but I think there, that there was a bit of a, there's an audience listening and I'm going Mm. to my audience with this little story. Gotcha. Yeah. I feel like I really didn't didn't get that or didn't get like people's sexual problems. I think we really were focusing more on have we had clients who presented with this issue and let's talk about that, how we'd manage it in a therapy situation. Well, it could be that, you know, you had mostly people who are 25 to 30 too, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, but when you have people who are 40, 50, 60 from all walks of life, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's time to get more of those interesting sexual experiences. Yeah. So um, ethically, is it okay for me to know so much about my students' sex lives? I, I won't have them again. They'll graduate in June, but I'll have one or two this semester. But ethically, is it okay? Yeah, I think it is because you gave them enough agency in choosing what they want to share with you. You didn't dictate that you have to have, you must share your deepest, darkest sexual desires and secrets with me. You gave them enough agency to say, like, talk to me about attitudes if you want. Yeah, there was that opt out option. Though I do wonder if it would be different if you were both their instructor and like their director of training in their program, or if there was like another level of evaluation or if they were, if they were maybe not in great standing with the program like there could be things that could complicate that I I would feel they would feel very vulnerable having written something like that and that they they might not have realized how vulnerable they would feel but yeah you're right that that would you you want to be a little bit more careful if you're going to be seeing somebody for the next three or four years perhaps and I didn't actually read their papers till the end of the semester I had two weeks to have read it while I still saw them I think it's helpful because something stick, you know, stories stick in your mind. You don't want to be looking mm-hmm. at somebody and picturing that sexual story necessarily <laughs> when you're um, answering them in class. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think we get, we're, we're um, going on for a bit and, and just wanted to check in if there's anything else we should cover about teaching sex and sexuality and the ethics of that and And uh, I think you've convinced me why Professor uh, Cashton had to cash out for a couple of years from teaching graduate students till he zipped up his mouth a bit. Yeah, there's nothing I can really think of. I think it's it might be interesting, perhaps on another day to talk about like the use of like picture or video 
um, when talking about some of these things, because the folks in my sexual ethics class had a variable response to watching content about this. Like for some of them, I think there was a significant difference between watching a video versus talking about it. Interesting. Yeah. So um, did you show them any pornography when you taught about porn? I didn't. Um, I showed them some still images, but the the thing that's coming up in my mind the most is the week that we did about FGM versus male circumcision. And there, I, when I ever, I show like videos and in general in the classroom, I always encourage folks to like leave and go to the bathroom or do whatever they need to take care of themselves when they're in class. They don't need my permission to leave. And I don't follow up with them about why. But when I played a video by a British organization that works with folks who have experienced FGM, there was a video of a nurse who was describing what the actual physical process of FGM was using clinical appropriate language. Multiple students left the room. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I taught a women's studies course called uh, Feminism and the Body. Um, and uh, uh, one of the students' final projects was on pornography, and she played a scene that she had was to demonstrate something when she was doing her presentation and she was demonstrating, um, you know, how anti-woman it was in some mm-hmm. way. And, and it was really interesting. Nobody complained about it. It wasn't a, wasn't a huge problem about that. And this was at a Catholic college. So that's many over a decade ago, though. I think people are more careful these days, though. I think. Um, and it also sounds different when a student is doing it than an instructor. For sure. Yeah. I mean, they could have said I should have shut that down right away. But I mean, right. I think the. So when my sexual ethics class was talking about porn, one of the students brought up. Um, race and pornography and specifically directed me towards a particular article. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pulled that up during class because I thought it was really interesting. And I think it included several pictures yeah. of porn and students responded totally fine to that. Yeah. So I wonder if it's something about more specific about the content or thinking about that some, something like FGM was happening to them that led them to leave. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, maybe we could end on this, but I I keep wanting to return to the ethics of things because part of concern is like, am I going to get in trouble? Should I have gotten in trouble? And isn't that like not really what ethics are about? It's such a low level of ethics, not whether something's wrong or right, but can you get in trouble for it? And maybe that's kind of the issue with some of the call out culture around uh, this it's about, you know, avoiding stuff so you don't get in trouble instead of avoiding stuff because you understand um, deeply what might be wrong with it. And as we've demonstrated today, it's kind of hard to understand deeply what the ethic is that mm-hmm. makes it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but we gave it a, a, a try, a good try with Julie. Yes. Plus. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming here too. And please uh, let us know if you're ever going to teach about sex again. I hope so. And if I'm ever <laughs> going to see you in person again, you will take me to that karaoke bar. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully things improve in terms of the pandemic sooner than later. Yeah. And at our virtual conferences, we can go and hang out in the virtual hot tub. <laughs> virtual (laughs) hotel (laughs) well thanks so much for being here and thank you madeline for being such an awesome co-host in the middle of your first year of teaching with so many other things yeah of course i always love these conversations and i really and what are we looking forward to talking about next in the next oh we're going to be talking about male rape scenes yeah i have watched bridgerton Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Not say anything. We're not telling you where they are because that will be spoilers. Okay. Oh, I'm just too excited. My apologies. (laughs) And I won't tell you the other place where there is one, but I think we'll have to think very carefully about our next episode and how we're going to say there will be spoilers about uh, um, some 
we can't say it's about male rape and then say what where there will be spoilers without saying there's male rape in these things. So that's just it. We can't yes. we can't do it. We're gonna do it, but we're we're gonna tackle that issue. And I'm gonna watch Bridgerton this week and next week. And even though the critics hate it, I guess everybody loves it. So it was fun. Fun. It was not good. It was fun. Like a romance novel, a, a bodice ripper, right? Yes. Those are yes. fun. Nobody um, assigns that for, you know, classic literature. So. <laughs> well, somebody does. That's deconstructionist kinds of English professors. But so I'm going to say adieu and uh, um, I'll talk to you again soon, both of you in different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ways. And uh, trying, it's been so long, I'm going to try to remember our sign off, which is be good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Dan for editing this. And uh, thank Thank you, fans, for listening. Bye bye. Oh,